As we begin this morning, I want to begin with prayer, and so I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started, all right? Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your provision another week and bringing us here to come and to worship together as the body of Christ. And God, I ask that you would teach your children this morning, that you would open their eyes to see the glorious truth in your word, that they would understand it, that they would receive it, and that they would come away changed by it. And God, we pray this all in your son's holy and precious name, amen. How are you guys doing this morning? It's a simple question, right, to, to, to answer, I believe. The, the Houston Astros are doing well. After 55 years without a World Series championship, they won it all on Wednesday. You guys know what that's like here. <laughs> maybe someday the Mariners will, maybe. Or Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, I don't know if I pronounced his name right or not, he's doing well after this last month being named the richest person in the world. He is worth an astounding $90 billion. And, and you should be doing well, right? What did you get last night? What was the gift you got at 2 a.m.? An extra hour of sleep. Unless you're Curtis and Amanda and your kids, did they sleep through the night? Oh, they didn't, see? Young parents, when you see us tired, just kind of nod and say, yeah, I know what it's like. Didn't get that extra hour. We didn't get it at our house either. So how do you answer that question when someone says, how you doing? Do, do you then think about the last week? Do you think about the morning? Do you think about what has gone well or what's gone poorly? Do you say, I'm doing good because everything seems to be going all right in your life? And the opposite, do you answer that you're not doing well because things in life are not going well? Is it that simple? Is getting what you want the best indicator of how you're doing? I mean, if we always get what we want, does that mean that in our life, everything is going okay? Is having all of our dreams fulfilled an indication that the heavens are smiling down on us. I don't think it's that simple. and It might be a symptom of a greater problem, a problem of spiritual poverty or maybe spiritual amnesia. Is getting what you want a reliable guide, a trustworthy measurement that things are going well in your life? That is the question that part of our text this morning is going to look to answer and we need to consider this. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 9. As we approach, as I approach the text this morning, I'm going to approach it a little differently. My desire is to, to cover all of 1 Samuel 9 and then the first 16 verses of chapter 10. And so there's so much to cover this morning. We're instead going to, instead of an outline, we're going to just read through it. And, and as I go through the verses, I will make comments along the way and exhort, and then we'll end with a, a word about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. In this chapter, and then chapter 10, and then preceding chapters after, or following chapters after that, you're introduced to a new character who's now come into the book of First Samuel, the character of Saul. But how do we get here? Well, if you haven't been here, let me bring you up to speed so you know where we've been and where we're going. 
The book begins in 1 Samuel with a young married woman who is barren, Hannah. She's unable to have kids of her own, and we read that God has closed her womb. But God is still working. He's working behind the scenes, and soon we find out that she will have a son, and she decides as a commitment to the Lord to, to dedicate him in service to the Lord, and that's Samuel that we'll read about. But there's also issues at Shiloh, issues with the priest, Eli, and his sons who are wicked, who make the place of worship a place of sin. And God brings his judgment on them. The sons and their father die, but the ark then is also captured. It's captured by Israel's enemies, the, the Philistine army. And as we read through it, we find out that the army doesn't want the ark because bad things happen. They, they seek to get rid of the ark and give it back to God's people, and they successfully do that. They ship it back. It's back in the hands of the people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we read about Samuel leading the people in repentance. You know, on a side note, as I, as I read a lot last week in preparation for Reformation Sunday, uh, Martin Luther's first point in the 95 Theses was as follows. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so I ask, how are you at repenting? Is that a foreign concept to you? When was the last time you repented? Turned away from sin. You know, Samuel sees this as crucial to live a life in obedience to God, and the people respond. But within a few short years, Samuel's own two sons reject a life of repentance and turned wicked, and the people cry out for a king. You can't blame the people at this point. Really, they've had enough of their leadership. When the leadership has continued to walk away from God time and again, sooner or later, the people refuse to follow. So they approach Samuel and they ask, really they demand for a king. All of this was originally instituted by God, but then they're asking, they're forsaking God as their king. They want a king like the other nations, and all that is in 1 Samuel 8. This is all significant now as we come to 1 Samuel 9. So if you have your Bibles, follow with me as I read, starting in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Let's pause there. Some things you need to notice as we get into this chapter. If you haven't caught on, we're about to find out how God is going to answer the requests of the people to bring them a king. And we're given some details about this king. First, he's a, he's a Benjaminite, one of the, the least of the tribes. and he, he comes, though, from a family of wealth that we'll find out. Saul is his name, and his father's name is Kish. Kish is really a nobody uh, from a lowly tribe, but the story isn't about Kish, it's about his son. Saul, Saul is an incredible specimen of a man. First impressions are not always trustworthy, and some struggle with their first impression. In fact, I know someone who says that they have a first impression disorder. It's true, he does. But the narrator has taken great care for us to present this man, Saul, for us. His name, Saul, is from the Hebrew word to ask. 
They asked for a king, so God gives them what they asked for. His name is to ask. There was no one like Saul in all of Israel. The ladies wanted to be with him, and the men wanted to be him. He was handsome, the text says. Pleasant to the eyes is what the Hebrew means. It also says that he was a young man, and the Hebrew has some subtleties here. Young man translates a word that can also mean a chosen one, which correlates well with the people in chapter 8 who who want a king. And Saul is the one whom God has chosen. So he's handsome. He was young. There was no one better in Israel. And he was tall. Now when it says in the, in the verse here, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people, it doesn't mean that he had a long neck. <laughs> it, it means that he's taller, head and shoulders taller than anyone else. People would have most definitely voted him Mr. Israel if there had been such a contest back then. If there was a basketball team in his high school, he would have been the starting power forward and dominated the court. This is Saul. Why such a detailed description of Saul? Well, we need to file it away, friends, because as we come into chapter 10, the later half, this all makes sense of God's choice. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, was lost. So Kish said to his son, his Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill of the country Ephraim and passed through the land of Shaliash, Shaliashah, excuse me, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shaliim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So when we read of the impressiveness of Saul, we begin to think that this is going to be an impressive story. But life doesn't work that way. Most of the important things that happen to us happen to us in mundane circumstances of life. And in the story, we read of the providence of God. God providing for his people. And when I use the word providence, I mean God's wonderful strange, mysterious, unguessable way of providing for his people. Have you ever experienced the providence of God? I know you have. Think about it, though. This, this afternoon, let, let it influence your, your conversations over lunch. Think back, again, of the providence of God in your life. It usually happens when we least expect it. And here we are, Kish, who's lost some donkeys, sends his son Saul and a servant to look for him. What do you think should happen in this search? You know, you're looking for donkeys. He's going to find much more than that. Uh, I'm sure Saul should have been an experienced shepherd, but from the text, it looks as though he stinks at it. He's searching for donkeys. Maybe they're stealth donkeys. I've been around donkeys. They don't seem very stealth at all but he can't find them. Verse five, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? 
The servant answered, Saul again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Verse nine, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well done, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Here is where things get interesting for Saul and his servant. They, they're unable to find the missing donkeys and Saul is ready to, to bail on this and head back to his father so that his father isn't continuing to worry. And they come upon the land of Azuf. This is Samuel's homeland. But the servant has other ideas. He says to him, there's a, there's a man of God in this city, so maybe he can tell us where we should go to find the donkeys. I find it interesting as I read through this that it isn't Saul that says this. And, and Saul doesn't know who this man is. Furthermore, how is it that Saul has never heard of Samuel? If you remember in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And in chapter 4, verse 1, says the same. All of Israel knows of Samuel, yet Saul has no idea. Doesn't know who he is. He's never heard of him. And that's shocking to me, along with the fact that he's never considers himself one to consult God. You know, maybe this is important, important to, to, to make note of, to show us what kind of man Saul really is. Well, Saul agrees to go and find this prophet, the seer, but they have a problem. Saul needs to bring a gift for the prophet. It looks as though that the future king of Israel is devoid of any spiritual sensitivity. He's, he's looking for spiritual help, and to get that help, he wants to bring a gift. The other surprising thing here is that it's not Saul who is leading the quest. Who, who suggests to go find the seer? It's the servant. He is the one who, who, who suggests this. He is the one who's, who's asking to talk with the prophet. He is the one essentially wanting to consult God. He is the one leading Saul, not the other way around. This would be disconcerting to read through this, knowing that this is your future king. But as we will see, when Saul becomes king, he would frequently be influenced by the counsel of others rather than steering the course of the nation because of his, his faith in his God and convictions from what the Lord says. That's nowhere to be found in Saul. Let's continue, verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. If you're familiar at all with biblical history, you'll, you'll recognize that there's a number of occasions in the scriptures of encounters at a well with young women. And in which something happens in those situations, it's very significant. The stories of Isaac and Re Rebekah in Genesis 24 and Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 29 and Moses in Exodus 2 and Jesus in John chapter 4. And this too is an another significant 
meeting at a well. And by chance, they tell Saul and his servant that Samuel is heading there now. All by chance. They tell him about the process of waiting until Samuel would come and bless the sacrifice. And that's, folks, that's really important to make note of. Why is this significant? Well, we'll, we'll get to this. This will be haunting to, to Saul later in chapter 13. But all of this has to be hitting Saul as just mere coincidence. Things must be falling into place for him. He, he's going to finally find the donkeys. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He, it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite, the least of the tribes of Israel? And is this... And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So for us, the, the veil is lifted a bit here to get, to, get a, to get an understanding. The author has given us a, a, a backstage tour to understand that God has been orchestrating this all along. The ordinary day, as we see, is not ordinary at all. And, and, and what did the Lord tell Samuel? Well, three things. First, he would see the Benjaminite the next day and he would anoint him. But, but notice, as you listen to my version, the ESV said that he would anoint him as prince. Some of your versions maybe say commander or ruler or captain. Leader is probably the best Hebrew translation of the word nagid, a worthy position, a, a leader of the people, but it doesn't use the word king. Why doesn't... Why doesn't God say, Malek, king? Remember, the people had demanded a king to come and to rule over them, but God, being their true king, knows what's best for them. Saul was to be the prince. He was supposed to be under God's rule as king. But this is not what will happen. He will be made king, as we will see in chapter 10, chapter 10 next week, by popular demand. He'll be forced king by the people. The second thing I want you to notice was the precious words that the Lord uses to describe his people Israel. Did you catch it in verse 16 and the other verses? He shall save my people, my people from the hand of the Philistines. And these are invaluable words here. These words should cause us to pause and remember that is the Lord who keeps us. How many times did Israel anger the Lord, walking away from him, spurning his love and care for him like a teenager to their parents, thinking they know more? 
The Lord calls them his people. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Listen, friends, Israel's rejection of their God does not paralyze the hand of God and the providence of God. Their stupidity doesn't pull away the hand of the Lord and it doesn't destroy the compassion that he has for his people. Ralph Davis has written, he says, these foolish, stubborn people do not cease to be the objects of Yahweh's compassion. Again, let no sin be glossed over. Let no one excuse its God-denying wickedness. But surely, if you are a child of God, you rejoice to see that your God is faithful with his mercy, that your sin does not dry up the fountain of his compassions, that his pity refuses to let go of his people. Amen? Psalm 103.11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Friends, God hears your cries for help. Don't think for a minute that he doesn't hear. He does, and he will answer. But also recognize that if we are rejecting him, he very well may be drawing us to himself, and it may not be pleasant. And why do I say that? Well, look at verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He, it is who shall restrain my people. There's some debate over the translation of the word restrain here in the ESV. Your, your version might say rule or govern. It's from the Hebrew word yazar, which means to hold back, to detain, or to keep imprisoned. Some irony here. It seems to me that restrain might be the best translation, but what he's communicating is that Saul will imprison the people. There are 46 occurrences of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and almost all of them speak to it in a negative light. And the author is using the verb to suggest that God will use Saul's career as a means to punish his people. Saul would literally fulfill the various meanings of this verb during his career as their leader. As he ruled the nation with his policies and behavior, it would hinder the welfare of the nation and act as a barrier, separating Israel from God's best for them. And remember, friends, sometimes God gives us exactly what we ask for in prayer as a means to bring discipline into our lives. God will provide for his people Israel, but he'll also be teaching them that their trust should be in God and God alone of the universe and not in man. But the last thing I noticed in this section is Saul's continued ignorance of who Samuel is. Saul is shown here to be exactly what the people asked for. He is a king just like the rest of them. He was not a spiritual man, but a blind man. One evidence of his blindness is his encounter with Samuel. Samuel was one of the most famous and honored spiritual leaders in Israel since the time of Moses. And when Saul came looking for the seer, he, he saw him as a stranger. He knew nothing of him. You know, the, the contrast between Samuel and Saul is, is striking. Samuel, the man of God, knew about Saul even before he met him. And Saul, the spiritually blind man, knew nothing of the prophet of the Lord. Had no connection to God. 
And this would continue on for the entirety of Saul's career. He would continue to be blind, especially when it came to people. His relationships with his son, Jonathan, and David, and even Ahimelech. He would misjudge Jonathan to be an unworthy son and a traitor. David would be a treacherous revolutionary, and Ahimelech, a co-conspirator against the throne. And all of this misreadings by Saul resulted in tragedy, not only for himself, but for the the people, Israel, they would pay the consequences of Saul's actions. Well, the last few verses of this chapter tell us what would happen for the rest of the day for Saul. Can you imagine? Can you put yourself in the position of Saul at this point? What, what it would have been like for him to hear that, that now Saul is the honored guest for the meal? You know, why did he come to find the seer? Do you remember? He's looking for donkeys. And now he's going to be the honored guest. Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set set before you, eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guest. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Samuel is the gracious host, and Saul is the honored guest. What a turn of events. Saul really doesn't understand it all. He, he saw himself as just a simple country boy. He had no claims to greatness. And we have no idea if the guests at this time know anything of Saul and the significance of this meal. Then verse 26, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. I'm sure at this point, Saul is dying to know what in the world is going on. Why was he brought here for the meal? Why why was he cared for, given a place to rest, and even his donkeys found? What is this all about? Why why is this now secretive? Well, Samuel gives us the answer, and he, he, he has to share with Saul the word of God. And chapter 9 ends leaving us in suspense. It leaves us with a break to to want to know more. What's going to happen? The the very ordinary life of Saul is going to be flipped upside down now. And we move into chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. 
Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you shall prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. The prior section shows us the honor that Samuel shows Saul with the meal, but this section shows the honor that the Lord gives to Saul by anointing him. And the anointing shows God's authority over Saul, having now made him first as his own servant, then as prince over Israel. The anointing also symbolizes the Holy Spirit's equipping for God's chosen servants. And as he finishes his anointing, he gives him three signs, which was there to show Saul the truth of Samuel's message to him, the authority that now will lie with Saul as he goes. There are three signs here. The first was Saul coming to the tomb of Rachel and be informed by two men that his donkeys had been found. And the second is would force Saul to acknowledge that he was now in an anointed status. And the third would be near Saul's home and it would confirm that it really was God who had anointed Saul. And Samuel's instructions to Saul would show that even under this new monarchy, Israel's leaders were to be subordinated to God's word through the prophets. This would be a problem for Saul. This would be a struggle for Saul. Verse 9, And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all, the pe when all, and when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's life would forever be changed in these moments. He is seen as a different man in these verses. Now, there's some discussion in these verses about whether Saul was converted or not. And don't read that Saul is now a believer in these verses. He gave him another heart, not a new heart. It's not the language, and it's certainly not the intent here. That the Spirit comes upon him to enable him to perform certain duties. It's not a declaration that Saul is now converted as we read in the New Testament that Saul is, he's not now in a new union or a new communion with God. That isn't the intent of the passage. You remember again that Saul is being made a king just like the other nations. That's the goal. That's what they asked for and that's what they're getting. But the spirit coming upon him to gift him, to enable him to be the king is all that Israel asked for. Well, the passage here ends in verse 14 through 16. Let's finish and read this. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when, he, and when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And the Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. 
And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the, about the matter of the kingdom which, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. I find it strange Saul doesn't fill in his uncle what happened to him. We don't know why. Saul's response was honest, but deceptively incomplete. This would be the type of a leader that Saul would be. Yet you see what Saul didn't say was more significant than what he did say. We'll end at verse 16 this morning, but it leads us to a great discussion here. The sovereignty and the providence of God. I read this week an interesting story published in Reader's Digest, of all places. In 1948, Reader's Digest published a story about a man by the name of Marcel Sternberger. He was in New York City. He was going one day to visit a friend and was delayed and delayed in work, delayed in the, the visit. All of his delays caused him to get on a train that he wouldn't normally get on, the subway. As he was getting on the subway train, he, he noticed that another man was stepping off, rushing off the train, missing his station almost. And so Marcel Sternberger took the man's seat. Something you should know about Marcel is he was also Hungarian. And he found himself sitting next to Bella Paskin, another Hungarian. Bella was reading a Hungarian newspaper, and Marcel leaned over and he said to Bella, I hope you don't mind me reading over your shoulder. That struck up a conversation because he spoke the same language. And it turns out that Bella Paskin had come to New York after the war. The Russians had deported him from his town of Debrecen, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Hungary. And he had been taken to Ukraine by the Russians to bury German soldiers. And when Bella Paskin came home to Debrecen in Hungary, he found his home occupied now by strangers. His wife and his parents were gone. He had been told that they had been taken by train to Auschwitz, concentration camp, and by that presumably killed. He immediately fled and came to New York. Now what's interesting is Marcel Sternberger just a few weeks before had met a woman, a Hungarian named Maria. He said to Bella on the train, what was your wife's name? And he answered, Mara. They stopped at the next station. Marcel Sternberger made some excuse about wanting to perhaps get some coffee before he headed into the office, but he was troubled. Before having coffee, he said, I must make a telephone call, and Bella followed him to the payphone. He apparently had taken down the woman's phone number. As he calls the woman, he begins to ask her questions. And he says, do you remember I met you a few weeks ago? And she says, yes, I remember. And he says to her, can you tell me the street and number uh, of which you lived in Debrecen, Hungary? And she told him, and he turns to Bella and says, what was the street and what was the number which you lived on? Confused, he answers the question. And you guessed it. He hands the phone to him and says, your wife wants to talk to you. Astounding. After all those years, a husband and a wife, one thinking the other is dead, now reunited because a man changed his plans, took the wrong train that he meant to be on. Another man left his seat just in time for him to sit down and notice that someone was reading the paper of the language that he spoke. I mean, it's coincidence, right? You're Christians, you better answer differently, right? 
I mean, it was in Reader's Digest. Pure chance, many said after this. But you know what Reader's Digest said about the story? They said it seems that God was on that subway. You know, another day that we read about on the farm, donkeys leave. They, they've broken out of their pen. And the owner of the donkeys, Kish, who sees them as, as, as important, they, they cost money, wakes up his, his young, handsome, tall son, Saul, grabs his servant and says, you need to go find these donkeys. And we read about it for 25 verses in Saul chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9. The, the search for the elusive donkeys, a, a fruitless search through that chapter. It took three days and they traveled something like 20 miles. And the servant, when Saul decides he's had enough of this looking for the donkeys and, and food's now run out, says, hey, let's, let's consider asking the seer. Yes, maybe he'll tell us. And as we read, the, the day before, God had told Samuel that Saul, this young man, would come. He would meet the future prince, the king of Israel. How would you do it? How would you introduce the prince, Saul, to Samuel? If you hadn't known this, if you knew what was going to happen, would you do it with donkeys? Donkeys breaking loose and, and going on this chase through countries to find them? God uses donkeys to bring this about. And in all this, friends, it's providence. So I want to ask this morning, friends, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Because if you believe in the sovereignty of God, there are no accidents. There is no happenstance. There's no chance occurrences. Everything, absolutely everything, falls beneath the plan and control of God. And it doesn't get more mundane than for looking for donkeys. It's, it's a mundane story. And in the most mundane events of our life, God is working out his plan. And God is fulfilling his purposes for us. You see, sometimes we think that God only guides in our lives in the big things. You know, the person that will marry, the house that you live in, the job that you have, whether you move from California to Washington or vice versa. You know, those are major decisions, and God is most definitely in those decisions for sure. And yet, my dear friends... God is in every decision. Absolutely every decision, every event, every circumstance. And this is most definitely a story that talks about the providence of God. A mind, excuse me, a man's mind plans his way, but his steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16.9. may be doing something very ordinary in life, but as Reader's Digest says, God is riding the subway with you. And as the scripture says, he's everywhere. As we wrap things up this morning, I want to come back to my original question that I led out with. How are you doing this morning? What is it in your life that you can point to to answer that question? If you remember, Israel asked for a worldly king and God sent Saul to them. And as we will see next week, Lord willing, the people will swoon over Saul. He will be the answer. 
He will be their Messiah, their anointed one. He will be their king. And they will taste the dark and bitter providence of God. And they will cry out for their true king. One that will finally do the will of God and not that of the world. And we read in his word, God would hear their cry, their years of crying. And he would send their true king, who is a stark contrast to King Saul. He would send Jesus. And for all of Saul's impressive qualities, he would not be the king that they need. Saul came to Israel with a human impressiveness. Jesus comes to the world in humility, yet clothed with divine majesty and power. Saul struggled for much of his reign to regard the, whole, the holiness and righteousness of God. He would stumble over God's commands, finding his own will more suitable to his needs. And in contrast, we read of Jesus, who always sought to do the will of the Father. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Saul had a fleeting spirit, but Jesus, as God's true son, was fully and constantly filled with the spirit of God. And Jesus is the true king sent by God to establish righteousness on earth. And in that righteousness to give eternal peace to those who call him savior and Lord. The people here had, had no no choice to accept Saul or not. This was a result of their sin, the result of the sin of the elders and their foolish desire to be like the world. But friends, you do have a choice and as much as possible to either continue to follow the world and all that it has to offer you or follow Jesus Christ. So I ask, how are you doing this morning? Are you content with the life that you lead following what you've always known? I'm going to pause this morning and think about those things in life that bring you the greatest joys. Think about those things or, or people or your job or your hobby. What is it that brings you the greatest joys? And, and do those things that bring you the greatest pleasure, are those things that lead you towards God or away from him? Are they directing you to your true king? Or away from him. You know, all of us want to act in some way that we're not accountable to anyone. We're really, we're, we're pretending. We want to believe that we are our own kings, that we're our own leaders. But that's not true. We are not autonomous beings. We are owned. And one day we will have to give an answer to the one who made us. And if you continue to live in opposition of the true king, you will regret that as you stand before him. You see, Israel forgot who made them. They forgot about the one who saved them, who saved them time and again. They only focused on their own desires, and those, de those desires were what drove their feelings and what drove their decisions. Their demand for a worldly king nearly led to their complete ruin. And friends, if you're not careful can lead to yours. If you are here this morning and you see yourself just like the people of Israel, you see yourself as written 
You've written God off as the rightful king in your life, and you've looked to find your joy and pleasure in other things than God. Know, know that God completely hasn't, hasn't completely written you off. Just as God, as we read in this verses, had mercy for his people, he has shown you mercy as well. Think about this, friends. You either came here this morning because you saw our sign, or you talked to a friend, or you saw the website, or, or maybe you're sitting next to a friend or a family member, and they invited you to come this morning, and they're sitting near you. And listen, friends, this is God's gracious mercy in your life. All of today may have seemed like a very ordinary day, but something extraordinary is happening. And God is drawing you to himself. And you need to repent of your sinful rebellion as you chased after the world. You need to be reconciled. You need to be made right with God. And for you Christians here this morning, God is and has been faithful to you. God has you. You are his as you catch it, as we read through these verses this morning in chapter 9, call, God calls them his people. And, and they're beautiful, not because of who they are, but because he owns them. Chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, when we read it, he says, as he's talking, as Samuel is relaying this, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw, saw the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. They're my people. And God is not done with his people. And he is not done with you, Christian. And maybe you come here this morning weary and down because you have not been faithful to God this week. And you need to take heart. As I read earlier, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You need to be reminded of this very truth this morning. You maybe came here this morning and you believe that God is done with you, that he's, he's done or that he's sick of you. And you've continued to fail, you've continued to fall, and you believe now that he will walk away from you. And you need to understand, friends, that you cannot do anything to pull yourself out of his hand. You are secure in him. I mean, think about it. If God's love for you was a result of your good behavior and your good deeds, then if you failed, then it would be true that he would leave you. But he never came to you because you were great. He came to you because he is great. He saved you, not because of who you are, but because who he is. And if you're in Christ, you're forever his. And this morning we have the opportunity to remember what Christ has done for his children. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. And friends, for those of you here that are not Christians, this could be your first time eating together with brothers and sisters in the Lord. As we remember what Christ did for us on the cross. As the men come forward, I want to encourage you to take time with the Lord and be praying as the bread and juice is being passed. 
pray that you would spend time with the Lord, confess any known sins, and remember what Christ has done for us in the cross.